0: We meet again, it's so good to see you. Uh, thank you so much again for, for worship. And it's just a comfort to the soul, isn't it? To sing of the mercies of God and the goodness of God. Uh, and that should be an experience that we, we enjoy together. Uh, and we certainly have this weekend. Ed, thank you for the word this morning. Uh, the word is a comfort to us. Uh, my task at this hour is for us to look at the stigma of mental illness. I think it's important for us as the church to consider this topic. Uh, It's a reality in the world in which you and I live that the ideas of mental illness are stigmatized. Uh, There are a lot of reasons for that historically, but but what I want to address specifically is uh, the ways in which this idea of stigma has been um, placed upon the church, as if the church is the cause of the stigmatization of mental illness. I think this is important because this is an issue that the church has to rectify. The church has to address this issue. As we think about mental illness, there are a lot of things that can be said about that. But I I go back to a time when I was serving in local ministry. I was serving at a church as an associate pastor of Family Life, and part of my duty, my primary duty, was to... um, was to lead a counseling ministry. And it was not infrequent that people would come to the office. It took a little while for for people to understand what we were doing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but one of the things that I started to notice even as uh, a staff member and a place where we were offering help and hope is for our own people. I started to recognize that, that when they had problems and issues we in the office were often the last people to know. and I don't say that anecdotally, I think that's been an experience that I've heard from the hearts and minds of many pastors, is we want to help, but oftentimes we're the last resort. And as we think about the church being the last resort, what does that mean? And why is it that the church finds itself being the last resort? And not the primary place at which we go for help and hope in some of our greatest problems when I think about the church and and how hopeless people must feel for us not to be the place that they come to, as they're categorizing where they want to go when they struggle and when they feel deep anxiety or depression or emotional despair or problems of all kinds in life. Why is it that the church is often considered the, the last place? I think there are a number of reasons that we could we could describe here. One of those is the way in which we categorize. We talked about this even uh, in a previous session last night. We, we categorize problems in a particular way. And by categorizing these problems in a particular way, we automatically describe that that's not the domain of the church. We use the term like mental illness. And if we had more time, I would do the same exercise that I do with my students. And I would ask the question, well, well what is mental illness? I mean, what does that term even mean? Right now, you see, secularists are are actually arguing over this particular term because no one can actually define it. No one can actually describe really what we're talking about. Illness, if you think with me for a moment, illness is intended to describe some sort of pathological description of causation, and mental is something that's immaterial. It's interesting to me how we would think that there's a, a pathological cause for something that's immaterial or how we would describe that something that's immaterial has physiological causation. That's the the intent by describing mental illness. The problem is even some of the leading psychiatrists in the world today would, would articulate that this is a misguided definition, a misguided description of what's actually going on with people. And so as we consider this idea of mental illness, part of the reason that the church is the last resort is the way in which these kinds of problems have been categorized. They've been categorized as one of two things, either something that's distinctly psychological, and if it's something that's an entity within man that's distinctly psychological and non-spiritual, therefore there's another type of professional that has to deal with those types of issues. And so the story went for about 90 years that we defer them away from the church because... We love you, we want to care for you, but these are issues that are outside of our domain. Another way in which these things are categorized often are by um, biological issues, biogenic descriptions, that these are driven by our biology. And there are certainly problems that we can identify in physical illness that are rooted in our biology, that's without question. The problem then comes is how do we describe these mental disorders or mental illnesses as being biologically driven. It seems to be mixing categories. But even if we begin to categorize these problems in those types of terms, what often happens is we say, well, that's not the domain of the church because the church deals with spiritual issues. And so we push the church off to the side. And oftentimes what happens, and this is the way the world describes this, is the church needs to relax about this and welcome these people in. Now, on the face of that, I think that puts pressure on the church unnecessarily. I think the real issue is not that the church won't be embracing. The church will be embracing to people who are broken. I think the problem is the way in which we categorize these problems. Let me think about this. If you have a, a pastor who preaches the word well, naturally what begins to grow in your church organically is a desire and a compassion for people, a love for people, to help people. As we grow in the Word, that's a natural thing that happens. When we are conformed to the image of Christ, we begin to see the world like Christ. And when we see the world like Christ, what, what naturally happens is we see people who are broken through a compassionate lens. But when we start to categorize these problems that people are facing as purely psychological or purely biological What happens is the church feels like they are not empowered to help at all. And no matter the deep love that they might have or the desire that they have to want to help in situations like that, we feel powerless. We feel helpless. And what begins to happen is we further stigmatize some of these problems that people are facing. And so they wake up on Sunday morning with dread in their heart that they have to go there again because that's a place where no one understands. No one really knows how to care. No one knows what to say. Maybe you've been there, maybe you've felt that. This is a common testimony of people who have been labeled with such problems. The problem with this is this is a culturally-derived expression of some of these problems. This is not the way in which historically we would see human problems described, in fact, Uh, with poor theology or not historically, the church was seen as the primary place that people would go for help and for hope and for wisdom and for guidance. Take the Catholic Church, and this is not a shot at them. I just want to use them as an example. Historically, they were a place that people would go for help and hope when they were having problems, when they were having issues. And you see implemented, even in that small window of time, uh, things like indulgences and absolution, That's a means of soul care. It's a means of which the church was attempting to try and minister to people. The problem is that they had bad theology that they were imparting to people as a means to assuage the guilt and shame of sin and human oppression. My point with saying that is it's not uncommon to us historically to see that the church is the primary place at which we see should be the institution that God has ordained for help and hope. I think part of the issue is that we have viewed now churches as a place that should be utterly sanitary. We act as though the, pla- the, this, the church should be a place where uh, everyone is happy, everything runs smoothly, everything really is perfect because uh, much of what's happened in modern America in relation to the church is we have to create an environment They're back to the influence of psychology in building this environment that will foster then some sort of holy interaction with God. When in reality, we know interaction with God happens when the word is preached, when people commune well and love each other despite the other. And then by the power of the Spirit, God begins to encourage us through his word and change our very hearts. That that work happens by the word. So when we think that we have to have sanitary environments... But we no longer become hospitals for the broken. We no longer become places that people can come to get help because they're dirty and in need. The church is the institution that God has granted, not the government and not any other institution. The church is the institution that God ordained intentionally to do this work of soul care. Now the question then becomes how in the world Do we recover the church in its primary role, and its primary duty, to care for those who are broken? To care care for those who have been labeled with such uh, disorders like bipolar or uh, major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder? How do we even begin to think about dealing with those issues? I want you to turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I think it's important (coughs) that we understand the way in which we have the New Testament. We have much of the New Testament is written, obviously, by, by Paul, the Apostle Paul. And I think it's interesting, the, the occasion for which he writes most of his letters. The, the occasions for which he writes most of his letters is because there were human problems. There were human issues going on. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians, that's one of the places it becomes most abundant. As Paul is addressing with the wisdom of God, and he's intentional to name only Christ to make the name of Christ known among these people who are struggling not just with issues of justification and salvation, but he's he's dealing with them on every level in relation to God and their problems. And in 1 Corinthians we see a myriad of problems. We see sexual immorality, we see fear, we see death occurring. Uh, we see issues of conflict and division that are occurring. And, and don't forget, even as we discussed last night, all those things uh, bring all to bear in our human in our humanness on those types of struggles and difficulties, the emotions that would be involved and so on. And what Paul does is, this is consistent in the way in which he addresses most people, is he, typically he would begin with indicatives. He's describing, if you don't know what that means, he's just describing an indication of who we are if we trust in the Lord Jesus. These things are true about you. And then he moves to imperatives. He moves to explaining and commanding because of what God and what Christ has done for you now live in this way. And what he assumes is that when we anchor ourselves back to the truth of who God is theologically and we begin to live that out practically, what happens is some of these problems begin to dissipate. The, the, deep, the depth of the stress begins to wane. Here in Colossians, it's, it's really no different. He's, he's addressing some sort of faulty idea He's addressing some sort of, uh, uh, some people would even call it a heresy, this idea of Gnosticism where people have believed that they've come up with some other wisdom outside of Christ. And Paul is addressing this and he begins (coughs) talking about the preeminence of of Christ. Now before we get to our primary verse in verse 28, what I want to do is I I want you to hear the way in which he describes Jesus. We're going to revisit this in another session later, but I want to introduce you to it now because there's a lot to be said here. Starting in verse 15, I want you to hear the, the language of the way Paul talks about Jesus. He says, He is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven above, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now I want you to listen very closely. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now listen to the words in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, the thing I I think is, is interesting and is appropriate for the way we discuss the church's role and responsibility in this whole mess of stigmatization is the way in which Jesus talks about his aim. What, Jesus talk, what Paul is describing about Jesus' aim is he, he no, notice in verse 22, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order that he may present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You see, what happens here is Jesus sets the aim of what ought to happen in humanity. He's describing specifically how we as humanity are repair, uh, repaired in relation to God. He's describing a a very therapeutic pursuit, if you will. He's describing the way in which we are restored, and part of his plan and his work is that he's going to do that for his people, the church, the body. Now, I think that's important because this is in direct contrast often to what's aimed at relative to mental health and mental illness, is when we describe those types of human problems, what we get consistently are superficial remedies, remedies that are are good for the moment, that we feel good about, but in the end we have to keep doing those things in order to feel repaired at all. Now the contrast is we begin to see all of these human problems as some of these are spiritual and some of these are are not spiritual. And so we categorize and say, well, there's a domain that's outside of the church that needs to address these problems. I think a question that, that remains here is, Where does the arm of Jesus in his restoration cease? Is there a point in our humanity, in all the brokenness of our humanity, is there a point at which the arm of Jesus in the work that he completed on the cross, in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, at which Jesus does not restore the totality of a human being? I think that's a critical question. Because Jesus sets up the aim of humanity. And see, what we've done with the system of mental health and mental illness is we've reset the aim. We've reset the aim in comfort. We've reset the aim in self-actualization. We've reset the aim in happiness. And those things now become our hope. And listen, when we categorize things like that, you're right, the, the pure and true church doesn't speak to that issue. Paul tells us in Philippians 3.3, 3, put no confidence in the flesh. So what you see is is happening is when we define ourselves according to a worldly system, we're aiming at two different things. So the church naturally feels powerless. Some people say, well, the church needs to lighten up. What I would argue is we need to flip that conversation and say, no, we need to take back over the domain of human problems and describe the depth and length and height at which the, the ministry of Jesus restores and repairs all that's been broken see, there's a distinct picture here. And what Paul does is he he establishes Christ's aim and goal first. And this is appropriate. This is right, because Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, Ryan, I love the way earlier you described Jesus as the great shepherd, the good shepherd. The ways in which Jesus is described as the good shepherd are intricate. The ways in which the Old Testament even foreshadows Jesus as the good shepherd are distinct. Duties and roles that that he would have to enact the will of the Father. Among those would be, he would heal the broken hearted. When we think about that language, he's describing that Jesus would take an open wound and he would be able to apply salve is the picture that we see there. And everything that the shepherds of Israel in Jeremiah 6 and 9 wouldn't do, Ezekiel 34 Jesus is now the good shepherd who has come to do such as that. And, and what Paul is trying to help us to see here is Jesus has a particular aim and a goal for humanity. And for we in the New Testament world, we in this here and now, this in-between world as we await the coming of Christ, we have the church established as an institution at which Christ is the head. And we as followers of Christ should be mimicking the way in which he cares for others. And it's not limited. It's actually total. When we think about the issue of body and soul, as we did last night, we think about Jesus as being the, the means of restoration. For even our physical problems, what we see is that Jesus is the means for restoration. What we're often told is to learn to be patient, to learn to wait, even in our distress, even with physical problems, as we heard in 2 Corinthians chapter four. We're taught to wait, to learn to be patient, to endure. For what purpose? Because Jesus is the one who's going to rectify even our body. So when we we split man in body and soul, there are two distinct aspects of our being. But the Bible describes him really in a holism. And we, unfortunately, what starts to happen now is when we allow that unnecessary division, we create, I think unnecessarily, categories of professionalization that now minister to those aspects of anthropology or those aspects of man or any breakdown in those parts of man. And those things become a facade and often hinder us from seeing the beauty of the restoring power in its length and depth of the Lord Jesus. And so when we think about the church, what Paul is helping us to see is Christ has an aim and that's a part of a method that God has given, I think, as Christ being the head of the church and you say, "Well, what is all this for?" Turn to Colossians one twenty-eight, one twenty-eight. What Paul is doing in this passage, I think, is he's using Christ as the head of the church, and he gives us a particular aim, and that aim is that we would be holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, part of the comfort of the promises of God that we see consistently throughout. The New Testament is that is a sure deal for all who believe in Christ, all who have called upon the name of the Lord, those whom he has awakened in spirit. And we have been made right, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In verse 28, this is what Paul says. He's he's essentially summing up now as he talks to the church at Colossae. This is your aim and goal. I think this is actually a decent outline for the way that we think ecclesiologically about what we're aiming at and what we're accomplishing. And I think how we begin to overcome this idea of stigmatization. Verse 28, he says, It's him we proclaim, talking about Christ, warning every man or admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, which later he would describe in a few verses, that that wisdom is Christ." That we may present everyone mature in Christ. When you think about the aim of biblical counseling. The aim of biblical counseling really is sanctification. It's driven by love, love of the Father, because of the way in which the Father has demonstrated love to us. But the aim of biblical counseling really is sanctification. You say, well, that's quite a spiritual term. I would argue that there's not a thing that we do in humanity that's non-spiritual. Right when, when Paul says in Colossians 3, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. I might would say it like this, that there's not a thing that we think, say, or do that doesn't make a statement about God. Everything that we think really makes a statement about God. It, it, it's, it's trying to put into practice and meaning of the world. Is it consistent with the way in which God has revealed himself? Everything we do really becomes an expression of what we believe in our heart to be true. Often we live as practical atheists, that's certainly true. But those are the parts at which God, through his word and his kindness and grace and mercy to us, reveals his word and how our hearts are often aimed in a different direction. So when we think about life and the brokenness of life, all of it is, I think, under that category and domain of spiritual. Sometimes we're told... That we can have help and hope to grow through this moment in the here and now because of the promises of Christ. And sometimes we're told to be patient and to endure and to wait the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now the thing I think is interesting here is what he does is he sets the aim toward sanctification. Now this is not ironic or this is not something that that Paul just pulls out of thin air. What he's doing is he's saying the aim of the church ought to be consistent with the aim of Christ. And what was the aim of Christ? That he would take everyone and make them blameless before the Father, above reproach. And now Paul is saying, this is, this is a duty and role of the church. Is that the church learned to take everyone and make them complete in Christ. Now, what does that assume? He gives us the means by which we do that. We don't have time to work through that today. But he, he tells us what's the, the, the aim. The aim is to make everyone complete in Christ. And what does that assume? It assumes that... Everyone who's involved in church is not complete in Christ. So if we're not incomplete in Christ, what are some of the, the ramifications of our struggle as we grow in faith, as we try to understand the world, as we interact with the difficulties of the world? We're going to fall in many ways. We're going to struggle in many ways. When difficulty comes, it's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge what we believe and what we think. Why? Because the flesh is still thriving to a great degree. And as Paul would argue in Romans 6 and 7, he lives in this body of death. And in in me and my flesh, he would say, there is no good thing. Paul is, at that point, a well-saved man, toward the end of his life seeking to do another missionary journey. And he's even saying the greatest, I think, Christian missionary that's ever lived is saying that he's still weak in his flesh. He's still struggling with difficulty in his life. He's still desiring to put to death this flesh that's within him now if that's true why in the world would we make church such a sanitary place why would we assume that when we walk in these doors that nobody should have problems you see what happens is the the mental health world drives us to say that uh, you're crazy if you have problems can i just tell you that that idea is faulty to scripture it's faulty to say that in this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. And so to assume when we walk in the doors of a church that we're a sanitary place is absolutely faulty. Now, here's the thing. If we begin to change our minds relative to some of these ideas and we begin to give the church its proper place, uh, we have some, some duty to do. We have some role and responsibility to change in the way that we think about church in the responsibility that we have so part of what I want to accomplish in the the minutes that I have left is I want us to feel the weight of our responsibility I want us to feel the weight of our responsibility as the church to recover and reclaim the domain of human problems that we would see once again that the church actually is the place at which we labor for people and with people It's the place at which we hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we proclaim the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ to repair every aspect of our being. That's what we're longing for. Even if we do find temporal uh, fixes for things that we struggle with on earth, the fact of the matter is today, Jesus himself raised Lazarus back to the dead, but Lazarus is dead today. What's happened often in the medical model, it's not that those things are not helpful at times. Listen, if I get cancer, I'm going to pursue finding some treatment to help me, okay? And and I'm grateful for that. I do see that as common grace from the Lord. I I see those things as as helpful, almost as a foreshadowing of the beauty of what the, the medicine can't do, make me live forever. It's a foreshadowing of the beauty of what Jesus will do and has done. So when we think about it in right terms, it becomes a stepping stone for the beauty of Christ and what he will accomplish. I fear what's happened, however, is we've now looked to the medical model for complete hope. And do you see what it sets up? What it sets up is often despair because people who struggle with these things that are categorized as as mental health issues often will will go uh, to a professional and they'll seek some sort of help. And what they find out is, uh, the medicine itself is not curative. Now it's something that they may have to take forever. It's something that has, <coughs> excuse me, extreme ex- ex- side effects and so on and so forth. And, and what begins to happen now is the person sees that. Well, if this is something that's environmental or primarily, if they're dealing with it with medicine, it's it's biologically driven or biologically explained. And now the person sees that. Well, there's nothing that can give me help or extreme relief from this or even is going to be curative to what ails me. You think of the despair and hopelessness that people feel when they think that this is a problem that's something I can't control and we found nothing to help it. And when we categorize things in that way, our eyes become clouded toward the true hope that's given in scripture. We have to make the proper aim in what we do, not self-satisfaction, not self-comfort, and not self preservation, but in the beauty and power of the Lord Jesus Christ that daily we are growing in Him, becoming complete in Christ. Now, what I want us to do, just briefly, is I want us to look at the ways in which we have failed as a church. And I think it's okay. I think it's right and appropriate and proper for us in the church to examine the way that we've thought about this in faulty means. In so many ways, we've abdicated so much that was a domain given to us by Christ in the church. I think the first thing, and this is something that's been beautiful, I've been ministered to um, by the work of CCEF. When I was trained as a biblical counselor, uh, the works that were done were primarily through CCEF. And so I'm so grateful for the work that those guys have done. I I think they're, they're helping us in so many ways to... Understand a view of suffering. I don't think, I think the church has lost to a large degree a legitimate view of suffering. Now we can argue and debate about why that is. I would say one contributing factor is the way in which we try to define human problems. When we define human problems as if all suffering is negative, or all suffering is evil, or all suffering is not the way it's supposed to be, and so there should be some sort of immediate human remedy that's offered. We've lost a biblical view of true suffering. We've we've lost a biblical view of what it means to live in a broken and a fallen world. We've lost what it means to be cursed by sin in every respect. When I use these terms corporately and privately, what I mean is corporately, the, the sin of Adam that's broken the entirety of the world, that's constantly groaning, we're impacted by that aspect of sin, This is physical problems that we have, the decaying of the body and so on and so forth. We've not taught well on suffering. I think part of that has to do with the the culture in which we live. We've tried to eliminate every aspect of our suffering. You see, the difficulty here is one of God's primary agents that accomplishes the will of Jesus for your life and the goal of the church is suffering. You see, suffering, God often intends for us to grow so that we uh, cut loose the ties of the things that we hope in in the here and now, the earthly things. So that we would aim at Christ, love Christ, be complete in Christ, trust in him, long for what's coming. I think we have to learn to teach about the realities of suffering and sin both. That, that sin is something that is deceiving to us. It's something that destroys. It is a destroyer to us in every respect, both emotionally, physically, so on. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 9. Peter is addressing this issue that I think will be helpful for us. And I want you to hear how he describes suffering. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Now I want us to think about suffering here. Paul or Peter is uh, praising the idea of this suffering and why. Because the aim and what it produces is something that's the aim of Christ for us. What does he say there? That we would, even though we perish, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What's it accomplishing? Exactly what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1. That we, through this suffering, through the difficulty are being made complete in Christ. Could it be said that the suffering that we endure is not something we should categorize as an illness? That we should categorize it as God wrestling with us and in his goodness that maybe he's destroying the very things that we love and hope in because of his kindness toward us. I think it's important that we reclaim the church as the domain of soul care. And in reclaiming the church as the domain of soul care, it does mean that there are implications for this. And I'm very cautious in the way that I describe this. I wish we had a little bit more time to flesh this out. But I'll suffice it to say that in the scriptures, God has not given the government the role to oversee the care of the souls of the people. As one author in history past during the time of the Reformation said, the, church was, the, the government was given a physical sword, and rightfully so, he describes Romans 13 and the responsibility of the government to punish those who do evil. And in that phrase, he's describing, he says, But the physical sword never has had the ability to change the hearts of men. But see, God has given the church a, a sword as well. He's given a, a, the church a sword, which we will hear about on Sunday morning. He's given the church a sword that does have the ability to change the hearts and the souls of men. Not just through the power of conviction, helping us to see who we really are in relation to God and the world and others, but also to truly, radically make us new, make us different, to aim at different things, to love different things, to learn to love what God loves, but also to learn to hate what God hates. You see, if we were to talk through the the pattern and the process of the church, The goal of the church. God has given the church this entity, this beautiful entity at which he's redeemed. He's given us that responsibility. Let's just brainstorm about that for a second. If you think about in the New Testament all that the church, God God has called the church to do. First he's called Christ to be the head. And everyone who's a part of the church, we are called to mimic Christ. We're called to... Uh, demonstrate what he looks like as a matter of fact this process of sanctification which we describe in biblical counseling is a process at which we are transformed and conformed into the image of Christ and we see in this transformation what happens is we begin to look like Christ we begin to act like Christ and the beauty of that is now we begin to reflect the character and the nature and the glory of God as Christ did but that also means that the way in which we love one another starts to radically change and this is expressed throughout the totality of the New Testament. Now, if we were to pause and we look at every aspect of the church, Christ being the head, and then he's given us graciously shepherds. Well, what is the responsibility? What is the role and the duty of the shepherd? I mean, what are they called to do as they, as they lead us, as they guide us? Well, certainly they're supposed to mimic Christ. They're supposed to be under shepherds as a description, if you will. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. What we see here, I think, is a a picture that that gives the primary duty to the pastors, the shepherds, to mimic the way in which Christ cares. And we have to see this as, as a primary responsibility. Hebrews 13, 17. Now first, the writer of Hebrews is making a statement toward us, but then he's also giving a command or a call to elders, leaders, those who are over us. Verse 17, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this because if we think of Ephesians 4, uh, they're supposed to be utilizing the word to equip us to do the work of the ministry. Right? We have this faulty idea in our ecclesiological systems somehow in the professionalization of, of church where we think the pastor is the, the minister. He's the only minister. And we pay him to do that work. And we just get to come and enjoy his funny stories and how he talks about the Bible and makes me feel good and we walk away. The the reality is, part of his role is to teach and to train us, equip us to now go out and do the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? Colossians 1.28. That we admonish, we teach for the purpose of making people complete in Christ. And then he goes on, he says, for they are keeping watch. He's talking about... The elders, the leaders, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's a pretty direct statement that, that shows that their primary domain, their responsibility is to do soul care, is to care for the souls of the people that God has entrusted to them. Why? Because they're going to give an account. You see, it's, it's always important to me that I express to those who lead in church that they know what they're going to be responsible for unto God. Now, not only is this a responsibility of, of, the, of the elders, I would also say this actually demonstrates some sort of methodology of the church, that God has in His grace given us Christ as the head, as a, as a model, as an example, and now He's told the, the elders, this is a part of what we accomplish. Now, I want you to turn to Ephesians 4 for us to see this same picture. We come full circle. Because what I would argue that's happening in our church, in our churches, is we've allowed and abdicated the responsibility of human change. But we've said that there are means to human change that are outside of the church that are actually beneficial. And I would say that those things become facades, even uh, maybe making us more sophisticated sinners in the way that we think about our human problems. And maybe in the same way that the Pharisees tried to represent God and describe God and explain God, Jesus was vehemently harsh toward them. Why? Because it was keeping people away from the truth of who God really was. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, the passage that I mentioned earlier, the Bible tells us something about the church. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now he's equipped the church to do something. So we can't fall into this mentality of professionalizing the pastorate thinking that he's the only one who should be or could be equipped to do this type of work. What we see is Christ being the head and the the elders leading in this, modeling this way to care for others and care for their souls, that really what the the shepherds are doing are are teaching us, equipping us how to do this work of the ministry. And, And Paul, what is this work of the ministry? It's to build up the body of Christ Until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. For what purpose? Here we see this similar phrase where it's a consistent aim of what makes a man healthy. You see, what makes a man healthy is everything that was broken by sin, God now returns by the redemption of Jesus back to this image of God. Back to the image, this mature manhood, the reflection, the fullness of Christ as Paul would say here to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, listen to the language, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now I want to break that down in two ways that I think is very helpful for us. First of all, it's okay to admit that we often in life are faced with difficulties at which we feel tossed to and fro. Because when we're, when we're born into faith, Paul uses this language to say that we are, we are infant. And a part of the process is, is we grow to maturity. Now I want you to think about this. We've gone through this now six times, and you've experienced something similar, I'm sure. is that It's a normal process of growth for our kids. Is, uh, when they're totting around and they, they go from crawling to trying to walk... Part of what's happening in those moments is as they're, they're learning to walk, as they get the strength to walk, and you notice how this works, right? Walk to daddy. Walk to daddy. And then if you reach out far enough, they might let go, and they're wobbling all over the place. And then they get a bit more bold and maybe a bit stronger, and they, they go from furniture piece to furniture piece, but wobbling the whole time. That has to be like one of the most dangerous times of a person's life. Uh, grace be to God that he made our heads in such a way that they're they're uh, moldable in moments like that. And so they, they fall all over the place. And, and notice what's happening. And this is similar to the language that, that Paul is helping us with here. What's happening is uh, they're immature. They're growing. They're in the process of growing, but they're immature and they're weak. Their muscles are weak. And, and until they keep trying and Keep trying and keep trying. Until that happens, their legs would never be strong enough to now walk. We've done that successfully six times. Now, this is a part of the picture. And what happens is when we demean folks who find themselves who are immature, who are not grown up, so to speak, in the faith, and the mental health system, in my view, really starts to demean anybody who has any type of affliction. When in reality, if we would understand from at base, the the impact and the effect and the infection of sin causes us all to begin in a very weak, destitute place. You see, this demonstrates we are needy people of the word. To grow up to mature manhood so that we're not like children based on everything that we hear tossed to and fro and by every emotional whim that we have tossed to and fro. In America, we have this tendency in our prosperity uh, and in our progress to think that everything happens in snapshots. Please don't read the Bible like that. right? You can read the life of Abraham in about 15 minutes. The ebb and flow of his life as he wrestled with God didn't unfold that way. Nor will yours. So when we think of Ephesians chapter 4, this is not something that one day I'm immature and the next day I find myself mature. All of us are in the process of, of growing. And this is why even those who are mature are not eliminated from the category of suffering and difficulty. What we see is it just demonstrates our, our, need, our, our need for Christ, our, our weakness. But the beauty of that is we can embrace weakness in the church. It's a paradox according to uh, the world. We can embrace weakness. Why? Because it's in our weakness that Christ now is proclaimed as strong. The thing that he warns us against here is to be carried away by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Every era of history has different language and players and people of ideas that have been cunning and crafty against the truths of God's word for the destruction of the family and for the destruction of the church. And the attempts that, that happen repeatedly throughout church history are evident and i would say that one of the ways in which we see deceitful schemes in trying to redefine anthropology is through this worldly system that we in our culture have so embraced but he tells us to how to how to fight against that rather speak the truth in love as we grow up in every way into him who is the head who is christ and he repeats again what the goal and the aim really is you see the goal and the aim for us, if if the goal and the aim for us in humanity is just simply to be happy, then the mental health system is a good effort at it. You see, what people don't often understand is the mental health system, the mental illness system that we have employed, is quite a brilliant system. The the problem is is the the categories that are defined are aiming according uh, to a different reality. And here's what I would say. I would agree with Paul in Romans 15 where he says if Christ has not been raised from the, dead, from the dead we are above all most to be pitied. I would agree with him. And I would say that if, if Christ is not the Lord then the mental health system is the best thing that we have. It's the best thing that we have to, to comfort us for as long as we live and then we move on with whatever's next. But what I would say is that if Christ is real... And if Christ is true, and if this word has been given to us as a kind grace of our God for the purpose of helping us through suffering, remember John 17, 17, Jesus' prayer, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. He continues on that prayer and says, "Don't, don't take these disciples out of the world. Be with them as they walk through it, rather speaking the truth in love. And now what we begin to see is this is not just the responsibility of those who lead us, the New Testament begins to breathe this idea, this is the responsibility of all of us as we mature. And these, some people categorize 43, some people say 59. One another's that we see throughout the New Testament where we're called to take this word of God and by love begin to speak the truth into one another. One of those is Hebrews 3.13 talking about the deceitfulness of sin and that we would encourage one another. Galatians 6.1, when we're caught into any type of transgression, that you who are spiritual restore such a one. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. This is how we get tossed to and fro by human cunning and craftiness. You see, this takes every single member of the body of Christ to function well. If we think about ministry in this way, according to the church, Christ being the head, the elders that God has given, ministering appropriately, knowing it's their domain and duty to care for the souls of people, surely God has given us everything we need for life and godliness to accomplish the things that we are responsible to him for. And furthermore, what I would say is that now, it's not just the pastor's role and duty to where he's belabored by all of this work because of all of our brokenness. Is now what God has done in his grace and kindness is as you grow up, into Christ, Romans fifteen fourteen, that you grow up into fullness and knowledge and you become sturdy in faith. Titus 2, you older women teach younger women. You older men teach younger men. Have the time to be with somebody that you can walk through their difficulties in life because as Ed described, being with someone matters. Walking with them. I, I fear what's happened is we've programmed our churches to such a degree that soul care is not possible. Because I don't spend enough time with you to know if this has been a rough week. So how can I ever employ what God has called me to do in ministering to you by the graces he's given through the word if I'm not with you? You see, there's a beauty that happens in the fellowship. And I would pray that what we don't do in the church is dismiss all the beauty and the methodology that God has given. He's instituted in this thing that we call the New Testament church. You see, the church is the, the place at which we should see broken people coming because this is the place at which people find true, lasting hope. Hope not just for today. Hope for tomorrow. And hope for the next day. And hope for the day after that. And hope for the moment when all of these shadows come to fruition of death in the moment of even our dying when we face one of our greatest enemies death that we cling to that only thing which otherwise we would find ourselves in deep and dark despair we cling ourselves to Christ listen this is why it's so important that the church never lose the doctrine of the preaching of the word the doctrine is important to be preached because these are the things that we cling to to anchor hebrews 6:19 our soul so may it be so among us that we in the church learn to reclaim what God has given as first a responsibility and second as a ministry. And what we'll begin to see happen is what we saw happen at our church. is now from seven surrounding counties, people started flooding to our place because people wanted to see, like, my friend said they got help here. And we're going to do everything we can to try and help you because now we become a culture that cares. And this is how we remove the stigmatization of all these human problems that have been categorized outside, is this has to be a haven for the hurting. And may it be so in the church. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the word, the word that anchors us to you, the word that empowers us through your spirit to minister. And God, I'm not naive to think that this is not an easy task. This is a grand vision that you've given Uh, And it's something that we know in our own strength is impossible. But God, you've told us that you will be with us, that you've given your spirit so that we can do the things that you've called us to do. God, may we glory in our weakness so that we can see you become strong. May the ministry that we feel is so impossible in the culture that we live in. uh, May it breed within us a desire to boast in nothing, nothing, nothing but you. Lord, may it be so among us in Christ's name.